I want to say a couple things from Scripture. First of all, to the ladies in the conference, I have heard about redemption coming through the seed of the woman. I want to make a couple comments on that, and then I have a word for you from the Old Testament, from the book of 1 Samuel. Do you ever wonder how God got divine seed into the human race? The Bible says about God that he has life. John 5, 26, and he is given to the Son to have life in himself. Jesus brought divine life into the human race. The bishop and I were talking this morning about the school that you have and the power in your educational system and how the life of God through Scripture gets into the children, makes them excellent scholars. There's something about life, God's life, we don't understand, but it's profound. There was life that God had to send from heaven to earth. And there was only one way to get it here. And that was through his only begotten son. So when Gabriel appeared to Mary in her home in Luke 1, and you can read it in your Bible. I, I won't go into the details. I just want to give you some, a couple of thoughts and then get to my message. When Gabriel appeared to Mary... He said, Hail thou that art highly favored among women, the Lord is with thee. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. That which will be conceived in your womb will be called the Son of the Highest. He told her she was going to have a baby. But Mary, a teenage girl, women in Jesus' day were betrothed between 15 and 17. Let's say she was 17. 17-year-old girl is told by an angel she's going to have a baby, and she says to the angel, how can these things be? I know not a man. And the angel says something to her in verse 37 of, Gen or of Luke 1 that is profound. In the authorized version, it says, for with God, nothing will be impossible. Nothing in Greek is made up of two words. Nothing in Greek means the words no rhema. No rhema. Rhema, R-H-E-M-A. There are two, wor two words in Scripture used and translated the Word of God. One of them is Logos. Logos re refers to the entire Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Rhema in Greek simply means a word that is spoken. How many of you have read the Bible one day and all of a sudden, something leapt off the page and burned a hole in your heart, and you wondered why you hadn't seen that. You'd read it a hundred times before, but that day, something happened. How many of you have ever had that happen? You know what I'm talking about. All right, the angel is saying to Mary, Mary, no rhema of God will be impossible. I want you to think of that. The angel said to Mary, no word from God, no rhema of God will be impossible. A more free translation has it this way. Every word that God speaks contains the power in itself for its own fulfillment. Would you all say that with me, please? Every word God speaks, word God speaks. contains the power in the word itself. 
for its own fulfillment. Mary said to the angel, how do I conceive a child? The angel said, Mary, the words I just spoke over your head have the power in them to make you pregnant. Excuse that blunt language. What did Mary respond? Be it done unto me according to thy word. I believe in that moment Jesus Christ was conceived in the womb of Mary. Later on in the chapter when Mary comes to Elizabeth, Elizabeth blesses Mary for her faith. Sometimes we Protestants have thrown the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to Mary because we didn't like what Catholics did with her. Let me tell you something. Jesus Christ would never have been born without the faith of Mary. Her faith had to receive the word of God, and when her faith touched God's word, Jesus Christ came alive in her womb. Hello, are you there? Now, when the bishop speaks on a Sunday morning here in your church, Mr. Sinnerman comes walking in and sits in the back row. What does he hear? He hears the word of God coming out of the mouth of a man. When that sinner man sits back there and says, I believe what I heard, what happens? His faith receives the spoken word of God, and Jesus Christ comes alive in his heart. It's the miracle of the incarnation every time someone trusts Christ. Do you understand what I just said? I'm going to try that one more time. Let's go to heaven on God's side of this process. God wants to get divine seed, his life into the human race. He calls Gabriel to the throne and says, Gabriel, take my word to a young virgin in Nazareth called Mary. When Gabriel leaves heaven, what does he carry? He's carrying the word of God. He speaks that word over Mary's head. He declares what is conceived in her womb will be called the son of the highest. But it must be received by faith. When Mary's faith reaches out to receive the divine word of God spoken by the angel, that word is turned into life. The son of God in her womb. When you are a child of God, you have that very life of God in your human spirit. You received it by faith. For by grace you were saved. By faith. And that faith is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's what I wanted to say for the women from the conference. Just to give that idea, redemption comes from the woman's seed. Now, let's talk about the issue of grace for a few moments this morning. I think the message of grace is the, the most important message of the Bible. 
I believe it's the hardest message for believers to comprehend. I love to preach on grace because every day I'm asking God to reveal more of his grace to me so my own spirit can pick it up and understand it. It's God's message. I'll tell you why it's so hard for us charismatic, Pentecostal, believers, whatever we are. We're raised in a society that shows us how to work. Do you have the phrase over here, the early bird gets the worm? We have a a phrase back with our football teams in America, no pain, no gain. We send our children to school. We tell them if they work hard, they will excel. They will be the best. Everything in society tells you to work for excellence. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's the way we ought to do it. We want to do everything with excellence. But when you come to the kingdom of God, You don't buy anything from God with works. And that's why the message of grace flies in the face of everything that our society has taught us. Because God gives it freely. And there's nothing you can do to buy it. How many people believe, you know, if I prayed a little more, God would heal me? If I read the Bible just a little more, I know that, that, that God would answer this prayer. If I gave a little more, if I led some more people to Jesus. And there are so many Christians that I know who are somehow, and it, it's, it's built in our nature. If you're going to succeed, you've got to perform. Law says perform, you'll be accepted. Grace says you're accepted. Now you can perform. And the difference in that is the difference between heaven and hell. Did you hear what I said? Law says perform, you'll be accepted. Grace says you're accepted. Now perform. But the hardest thing in the world is for you to accept something that you didn't earn. Because everything you ever got, you worked hard for. In the kingdom of God, you don't work hard for anything. You just believe. Don't shout me down because I'm preaching good this morning. I think that's a good statement right there. Now, there's a little story tucked away in the Old Testament. I, I don't think I've ever heard anybody preach on this. A little story of grace that is one of the most profound stories in the entire Bible. But it pictures the whole concept of grace for us in a very profound way. And it's found in 1 Samuel chapter 18. You may have thought I forgot my text. But I want you to turn over there very quickly. 1 Samuel chapter 18. And then we're going to turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 4 verse 4. All right. 1 Samuel chapter 18 verse 1. Now, let me give you context for this scripture. In chapter 17, David has just slain Goliath. At the end of the chapter, he cuts off Goliath's head with his sword, picks up his head, a fairly gory scene, and walks into the tent of King Saul. And that's how we come into this narrative. 
Verse 1, 1 Samuel 18. Now when David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. But Saul took David that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Now look at verse 3. This is the key. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant. Would everybody say that please? Then Jonathan and David made a covenant. Would you say it one more time? Because he loved him as his own soul. Now here's what they did when they performed the covenant. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. Now the jacket or the coat referred to a man's character. The weapons, the sword, the bow, and the belt indicated a man's strength. They exchanged these when they came into covenant. But look at it again in verse 3. Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. A covenant in the Bible is a very important and profound word. There are two parts to the Bible, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. A covenant between two men, an agreement between two men in the Bible, in the Old Testament, was a union of two parties that brought all of their assets, their talents, their debts, their liabilities, and they were mutually held by each other. These were worked out in carefully defined pledges and promises, and each man made that promise to the other man. It was a very dramatic process. As you study covenant throughout the Old Testament, it was a bloody business. They took an animal and slew it, cut it down the backbone, and you see this in the story of Abraham, divided the animal in two pieces. And two covenant men would stand in the midst of the blood and the quivering flesh, David and Jonathan. Try to picture them this morning for a moment. David stands strong, tall, bronzed by the wind and the sun, a rough shepherd's coat. On one side of the animal, Jonathan stands on the other. A royal young man, noble bearing. And they stand and they repeat the pledges of covenant to one another. They take off their jackets. They exchange them. They take off the weapons. They're exchanging them. This is the most solemn agreement that a man could make. And because it was signed by blood, if either ever tried to get, come out of it, he was liable to be killed. What they were saying, the one man to the other, is everything that I have is now yours. If you have a debt, I will take care of it. If you're in trouble, I will come to help you. You are closer to me than blood, and we have come into covenant. That's what they were saying. As they stood facing each other in the midst of the animal, David reaches up his hand, and with a razor-sharp knife, cuts an X in his wrist. That was the sign of covenant. Then he repeated his pledges to Jonathan. Jonathan took the knife, raised his hand, cut his wrist, and he repeated the pledges he was making to David. Then they walked toward each other in the midst of the dead animal, and they grabbed hand on wrist, 
and they mixed the blood of both wrists together. Now, this is taken from various places throughout the Old Testament. It's a, a composite picture that I'm giving you. Everything that is mine is yours. I am coming into a solemn agreement. This was more binding than marriage. Now, what is powerful about it is that it lasted for generations. And what is also not understood about it is that it covered all of the family. Every child that David had not yet conceived would be included in the covenant that he had made with Jonathan. Every child that Jonathan had not conceived would be included in the covenant with David. They were promising their families would be bound for generations. All children, grandchildren were included. David said, I'm committing to your family. Jonathan said, I'm committing to your family. And by the way, after they had said the terms of government, they sat down and they had a memorial meal. And that is where we understand the communion of the New Testament. And I don't have time to get into that. But as soon as the covenant was made by the two young men, Saul, the king, found out about it. Jonathan was Saul's son. Saul wanted Jonathan to be the next king, but God had anointed David. And Saul knew that the anointing had left him and was on David. And when he found that his own son had come into covenant with David, he said, I've got to kill David. Twice in the palace of the king, he threw out a javelin trying to pin him to the wall. Twice he hunted him like a partridge on the mountains, trying to destroy David. Twice God gave Saul into David's hand. David stood over Saul, could have taken his spear and smitten him to the ground. Why didn't David do it? He couldn't. Because he was in covenant with Jonathan. It was totally binding. The day came when Saul and Jonathan and their land was invaded by the Philistines. And there was a great battle on Mount Gilboa. That day Saul, Jonathan and his brothers were slain on Mount Gilboa by the Philistines. The word went out that Saul was dead. Now, in those days, it was customary when a new king took over, and everybody in Israel knew that David would be the new king. It was customary for the new king to kill the family, the royal family that had preceded them. So everyone assumed naturally, especially Saul's progeny, because Saul had hated David so intensely. Saul's family naturally thought David now is coming to kill us and to wipe us out. So when the news came of the death of Saul and Jonathan, knowing that David would be the next king, the family fled. Now we get the rest of this story in 2 Samuel chapter 4. If you turn across, there's a little verse here that really is important. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened, as she made haste to flee, that he fell and became lame 
excuse me, that he, he, she made haste to flee, that he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. I want everyone to say Mephibosheth three times real quick. <laughs> I dare you, try it. Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth. Now, I'm going to say that because I just may make a mistake in these next couple of moments. When the word came to the palace that Saul and David were dead, or Saul and Jonathan were dead, Jonathan had a son that David didn't even know about. He was five years of age. David had been running from Saul on the mountains. He had no idea this kid, this little boy even existed. And when the word came to the palace, David is coming. David is coming to get us. His nurse ran into the nursery, picked him out of the crib or wherever he was laying, and tried to run out of the palace with the little boy. But as she was hastening down the steps, she fell on the child, and the weight of her body broke the legs of the little boy, and the Bible said from that moment on he was lame. He was lame in both of his legs. His name was Mephibosheth. Now, Mephibosheth did not know that his father Jonathan was in covenant with David. And so Mephibosheth went with the family of Saul to a desert outpost called Lodibar. And there Mephibosheth lived for the next 20 years of his life. It's hot in eastern Judah. It was 120 in Baghdad when I was there in August. You have no idea what it's like in the desert. Here's a boy who's lame in his legs with crutches, dragging his limbs across the desert in the scrubland of Judah in the heat and the sand, terrified of the day that David finds him. He's been told when the king gets his hands on you, you're a dead man. You represent Saul's kingdom. David wants you dead, and he's looking for you. The word is out. For 20 years, this young man exists, barely exists in the desert, not knowing about covenant and the power of covenant between his father and the current king of Israel. One day, David is sitting at his palace, and during that uh, 20 years, I might add, David consolidated his power. The kingdom of Israel flourished to 10 times its size. David became a hero to the people. Peace reigned. He built an empire. One day, sitting at the table, as he reaches out to, to pick up something to eat, his robe falls away from his wrist, and he sees the mark. And it occurs to him to ask a question. And he says to everyone in the palace dining room, does anybody here know if Jonathan or Saul has progeny or a son? Is it possible there's somebody out there? I don't know about it. Turn over now to 2 Samuel chapter 9, and we'll get this part of the story. Now David said, is there anyone still who is left of the house of Saul? Notice what he says, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And when they called him to David, the king said, Are you Ziba? He said, At your service. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There's still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? 
Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he's in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel in Lodibar. Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Maker, the son of Amiel from Lodibar. And when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face, prostrated himself, and David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Here's your servant. So David said to him, Do not fear. For I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and I will, here it is, here's covenant, I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and notice the next phrase, he says this four times in the rest of the chapter, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Imagine what it's like for a young man afraid of a king he doesn't know for 20 years. One day as he drags his lame legs across the desert, he's now 25 years of age. He sees a cloud of dust on the horizon. His heart jumps into his throat. He says, I wonder if David has found me. As the chariots pull into the small desert encampment, he sees the emblem, the Lion of Judah, on the chariots of the king. And he says, he's come. I'm going to die today. Someone says, who is Mephibosheth? They all point at the man with the lame legs. They pick him up, put him in the chariot, race back across the desert, back to Jerusalem, pull into the courtyard of the king. Mephibosheth crawls out of the chariot on his crutches, walks slowly up the marble steps of the palace into the courtroom. And he knows today he's going to die. When he comes before King David, he falls onto the marble floor, waiting for the swish of the executioner's axe or sword. As he lays on the floor, he hears words he cannot believe. David says, Mephibosheth, I am going to show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. Mephibosheth's mind says, no, he's playing with me. This is a game. This is a cat playing with a mouse. This is for 20 years. I've been told this man wants me dead. David says, for Jonathan's sake, I'm going to give you the land of Saul, your grandfather, everything you want, and more than that, you come and sit at my table. Everything that I have is yours as well. Mephibosheth is laying with his face on the floor saying, why? Why? And David lifts up his robe. Mephibosheth looks at the mark on his wrist, and he whispers, covenant covenant David has come into covenant with my father Jonathan this is incredible now I want you to think about that for a moment think about the shocking revelation to a young man who for 20 years had been afraid of a king that he knew was going to kill him he was born into a covenant he had done nothing to deserve. He's a man with lame legs. There's nothing he's got to give the king. 
This was not a gift based on merit. Mephibosheth is faced with the power of grace. And he's got to make a choice. Laying there on the floor was an obvious choice. He said to the king, I receive your gift of grace. David called his courtiers. They walked in. They took him to the king's royal bath, took off his clothes, his dusty rags from Lodibar, dressed him in the royal robes of King David. And from that day on for the rest of his life, he ate at the king's table. Do you think Mephibosheth understood grace? Grace, my friend, is found in covenant. Now, the profound truth of the gospel is simply this. 2,000 years ago, God sent his son through the seed of the woman. And every one of us was represented in Jesus Christ. He was flesh of our flesh, bone of our bone, but he was very God and very man in one person. But he took the entire human race and on Calvary he came into divine covenant with his father on behalf of mankind. You were in Jesus there. I was in him there although no one knew we would ever be born yet. For God so loved the world we were all there. We were in him. And when Jesus came into covenant with God on behalf of man, he represented you. He's got the marks on his wrist to prove it. Now, mankind is asked to make a decision. Will we receive what Jesus did on our behalf? Or will we try to earn it? The entire human race is living in Lodibar. Living in the dust. Afraid of a God we don't understand. Most people in the United Kingdom fear God. They say if God ever gets his hands on me... I'll be done. I'll be finished. Why do we think that? Because every one of us know that we've sinned. We know that we've failed. We know that we've broken God's law. We know that time and time and time and time again, we have failed. And we are asked to take our eyes off our failure and believe in grace and what God has done and that becomes the struggle. You know why people don't accept God's grace? They don't think they deserve it. Grace is too good to be true. Why? Because society has taught us to earn everything we get. The early bird gets the worm. The kingdom of God says Jesus has done it all. Are you willing to believe? 
Now, Christians, born-again men and women, men and women just like you, I'm one of you. The hardest thing in my life to understand about God is that He wants to give me freely. He doesn't want my works. I keep saying, you know, if I just prayed a little more, God would do this and God would do that. If I just read the Bible a little more, if I just did this and did that, God would do this for me, God would do that for me. And, and, and I try so hard. And then I come back to this little story. And I understand. God put me in Christ. And He did it all. For by grace are you saved. Through faith. Not even that faith is of yourself. It's not a works. Lest any man should boast. What do we do? We have to pull up to the table. That's God's invitation. And you can live in Lodibar. You can live trying to please Him. You can live with the fear of your mistakes and your failures. Or you can pull up to the table. Every time Mephibosheth pulled up to the table, he couldn't see his legs anymore. He couldn't see the lameness. He only saw what was provided on the table. Let me ask you what's on the table this morning. What's God got on the table for you? First of all, forgiveness of sins and peace with God. What else is on the table? Healings and miracles, the sign you got outside your building. It's on the table. It's for every one of you. You can't buy it. God's begging you to receive it. Just believe. What else is on the table? Righteousness. 100% righteousness from God. What else is on the table? The life of God, not death. What else is on the table? Prosperity and abundance, not poverty. What else is on the table? Instead of shame. Shame in the Bible always deals with nakedness. When Adam and Eve found out they were naked, shame entered the human race. God clothes us with glory for shame. What else is on the table of the Lord? Instead of rejection, there's acceptance in the family of the king. I could preach in every one of these points this morning. What else is on the table? Pastor spoke about it earlier. All the blessings of God because Jesus took the curse. Jesus took the punishment for your sin to forgive you. 
Jesus took sickness and disease on the cross. Jesus took your sin to give you righteousness. Jesus took our death to give us life. Jesus took our poverty to give us prosperity. Jesus took the shame so that we could be clothed in glory. Jesus took rejection by the Father so you would be accepted. Jesus took the curse and offers you the blessing. What an insult to God when we refuse to pull up to the table and realize that it's ours. It belongs to us. We're in covenant with the creator of the universe. And all we do is pull up to the table and receive. Let me close with this thought. It's dinner time in the palace of the king. I love the way you English announce your meals with a little tinkling bell. I'm sure someone rang one of those little tinkling bells in the palace. David comes out of the royal bedroom dressed in his royal clothes and sits down at the head of the table just like the bishop. Another bedroom door opens and out comes Amnon, David's eldest son, crafty, clever, Amnon. He's the oldest son. He sits at the right hand of the father. Out of another bedroom door comes beautiful, gracious Tamar, the daughter, and sits at her father's left hand. Another bedroom door opens and out comes Solomon, precocious, brilliant. He's just been writing a new proverb. He takes his place at the table. Then comes Absalom. Handsome Absalom. Hair down to his shoulders, black as a waven's ring, wing. Proud, flings his hair and sits down to the table. Then comes Joab, the captain of the hosts of the king. Joab with shoulders as broad as a barn door. Bronzed from the sun and the wind. His armor clanks as he walks through the palace and sits down at the table. And then they wait. And in the distance, you can hear the clump, clump, clump of the crutches. And the lame man walks into the dining room of the king. And they all stand. And they lead him to his place at the table. And they all sit down. Do you think Mephibosheth understood grace? question is simple this morning. Do you want to keep living in Lodibar? And I'm talking to Christians and non-Christians alike. Do you want to keep struggling 
by what you're doing to somehow earn his favor? When he said, come on, bring your lame legs, bring your mistakes, and bring your failures. It's all on the table for Jesus' sake. It belongs to you. It's the power of grace. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. I want to ask you a straightforward, honest question this morning. Somehow I sense in my heart that some of you have been trying so hard. You've been living in Lodibar. You don't understand how passionately God loves you. You've been thinking inside, if only I prayed some more. Or if I did this or that, I would find his grace. But Jesus has totally paid the price. If you're sitting here this morning and you say, Preacher, I'm tired of living in Lodibar. And I want to pull up to the king's table. If you're saying that in your heart right now, around the room, I'm going to ask you to slip up a hand right now quietly. Anywhere in this room. I'm tired of living in Lodibar. I want to pull up to the table of the king. Yes. 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 Let's stand together, shall we, everyone? Friends, I preach this message for myself more than anybody in the audience. The grace of God confounds my understanding. I feel unworthy of it, as you do. But I'm committed to receiving by faith. I'd like to pray a prayer for every one of you who wants to get out of Lodibar and pull up to the table of the king. I'd like you to pray it with me now, everyone. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Repeat it after me, dear Heavenly Father. Thank you for your grace. I ask now that the Holy Spirit himself will open my spirit to see your grace, that my heart may grasp it. And this morning, I'm tired of Lodibar. 
I'm tired of the desert. I'm tired of trying to please. And by faith, I pull up to the table of the Lord. And I receive your goodness. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you that I'm healed. Thank you for righteousness. Thank you for life. Thank you for abundance. Thank you for your glory. Thank you for acceptance in your family. Thank you for the blessings. In Jesus' name. Amen.